In the beginning, it was all good, until it wasn't. Then it was all very bad. But God provided a remedy for all that had gone wrong by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, the living Word, who became flesh and made His dwelling on earth. And He is God with us. Good morning again, Park Springs family. Uh, thank you for, for joining us this morning for, for virtual church with all of the adjustments uh, that we've needed to make. Um, we're grateful to be able to provide an opportunity for us to, to jump in and still worship uh, together, although it be in our own homes. And so again, thanks for the flexibility and just the joy that we've been afforded to still worship as a community of faith, even though we can't be in um, person with one another, which is something I deeply miss. That's been one of the joys over this whole COVID season for me is that in the process of even some of the restrictions that we've had to put in place to be able to to see and and be around uh, each of you through these last few months has been a real joy. So we look forward to being able to, to start that again. This morning, we're, we're jumping into John chapter 1. Now, John chapter 1 is, is kind of a, a core uh, theological treatise by the Apostle John about the, the core implications of what we call the incarnation theologically. It means the, the presence of God jumping into uh, our, our lives, our routines, the, the brokenness and emptiness of this world. There's this intrusion of the second person of the Trinity, Christ himself coming in the form of a a baby, and I know that we're fairly familiar with the vast amount of uh, stories about the the baby in the manger and Christmas just elicits so much of those uh, feelings and and significance of this moment. But I want to I want to draw us to a place deeper this morning. I want to move us to a, an area of of really the implications of the incarnation. Jared did an amazing job last week in, in drawing us through specific places in the Old Testament, reminding us that God created us to, to be with us. That, that the act of creation itself in this relational goal of God to be not only in the midst of his creation, but with, with the people that he created. Now, sin had fractured that, but it didn't stop the purpose of God in moving towards and finding and working out ways to be with his people. I think as I think about history as a whole, I think we find ourselves balanced in two different directions. One, history is a story of remarkable rebellion. That just throughout the course of not just the Old Testament, but history as a whole, there's been this level of defiance and rebellion that has been taken uh, against God and, and His plan and His perfect uh, purposes within the context of the world. So on one side, you have certainly a level of, of uh, just remarkable rebellion. And on the other side, you have just aspects of boundless or limitless grace. I mean, it just as we read the Old Testament and we begin to flourish and feed ourselves with the reality of God's intrusive work, we, we get stories like Noah. The description in the book of Genesis is that violence and difficulty and, and corruption was the order of the day, that it was just running rampant. 
So much so that as God intervened in his purposefulness, he called out Noah in the midst of a relationship, gave Noah plans and purposes, and through those plans and purposes, the the purpose was the ultimate furthering of his humanity, that which he created for the purpose of relationships. Just like Jared said, we're going to be beating this drum. God created us to, to be with us. I mean, you, you move beyond the story of, of Noah and, and you think of the significance of the, the story of Daniel and, and all of this uh, challenge that he finds himself in. A society that is somewhat anti-God of the Old Testament placed in a position of authority as he's used by God to, to begin to help reshift not only the culture, but really move towards an understanding of who the real true God is. There are consequences after consequences and struggles after struggles as he stands for his faith. The reminder, though, is that in all of those moments, God consistently moving towards his people to bring them to himself. Right, Even the story of Jonah, you get this sense of Jonah at the end of the book knowing, knowing the character of God. And because he's so aware of the character of God, he runs away. The story of Jonah is this clear indication that, that when we know the depths of God, what we end up realizing is that God has the power to save anyone. Jonah runs because he has a, a really difficult time with the understanding of who Nineveh was and the people there were full of corruption and deceit and and divisiveness and all of these things where there was just violence upon violence. And God calls Jonah out to be a messenger of truth. And Jonah says, I didn't go because I knew that you would save them. You see, there's this sense in which as we're beginning to grow in our understanding of the character and the nature of God, What it does is it compels us to a radical reality that those two things through the context of history remain the same. Radical, remarkable rebellion and boundless, limitless grace. There's a sense in which the activity of God is moving towards his creation and his people. The incarnation serves as the the real pinnacle of that declaration between those, those two extreme realities of remarkable rebellion and limitless grace, you get this perspective of God again intruding in the most real and surprising of ways. Although the Old Testament had promised that this would exactly be what would take place. What we find is this act, an action of God to pursue His people in such a way that his pursuit results in drawing them near. God has many plans throughout the world, not the least of which is his own glory. But I would also say secondarily, to draw his people to himself. That's why God with us is such a a crucial day-by-day reality. Like this, when we talk about Christmas and we talk about the Christmas season and we're even discussing Advent and All of those components of what we would suggest are things that are a part of our our ritual and our tradition. We can't lose sight of the impact, the absolute radical paradigm shifting life altering impact of God with us. 
It's even an aspect of his name when we talk about Emmanuel. We're, we're describing this sense that God himself has chosen to be with his creation when they are undeserving of his presence. You see, that's the radical rebellion piece. That There's a knowledge and an understanding of the brokenness and the distortion and the fractures that have happened in this world. The, the willful sin against God's created order. And then the actions of God to move towards His creation and His people in limitless grace. God created us to be with us. It's the theme of what we see in almost every page of the Old Testament. These radical appearances of of Christ in the Old Testament showing up in such a way where they're able to see the reality of who God is and His desire to be with them. That it's in those most difficult moments where the people themselves are crying out for God, where he enters in, not with just sage advice. He enters in with his presence. And so we hold that as as such a core reality of the work of God pursuing his people in the Old Testament. God created us to be with us. Then it moves us to the New Testament reality. Luke 2 certainly gives us a great story of all of the events of the uh, presence of Jesus, the incarnation, the birth narrative of how Jesus shows up on the scene through the Virgin Mary and all of the implications of everything that took place. I want to move just away from the narrative itself and jump into the theology behind the narrative. Thus, John 1 becomes a central point of of connection between remarkable and radical rebellion and limitless, boundless grace. If you have your Bibles, I'd appreciate it if you'd open to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John begins this way. In the beginning. It, It harkens us back to the reality of how Genesis itself started. In the beginning. Right, that there's this sense in which God is a continuing based on his character to intrude, create in the Old Testament, intrude in the New Testament into the world where the things that he speaks are those things that bring life. Right? In, in Genesis chapter one, the communication of in the beginning was so essential. It was this spoken word in which God himself totally eternally pre-existent, never created, speaks and things come into being. John chapter 1 wants to attach our minds and our hearts to that very point because now what he's going to communicate is that very same thing is still true. As God speaks, life is created. As God speaks, light is penetrating into the darkness. As God speaks... We, as his creation, are recipients of the very characteristics and aspects of God's character. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness of the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And the world became, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he, we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this who, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, boundless, limitless grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So, so as, as John begins to theologically clear up for us the impact of Jesus' entrance into the world, the, the incarnation itself, we, we come to this place where he's highlighting and addressing characteristics of who God is that would lend itself to be able to understand the impact that the incarnation has, the impact of Jesus's intrusion into the world. So he starts off by, by providing for us in the first three verses just characteristics. When we think about in the beginning and we think about who God was, the, the pre-incarnate logos, if you will, the word itself. John tells us that it's always, that, that Jesus has always been around. That, that in the context of everything that's taken place, there is not a moment where Jesus has been created. Jesus has chosen to intrude into the world as a second person of the Trinity, but he's, he's always existed. He tells us that he is light and life. And in the process of that, Everything has been created through him, don't miss it, and for him. There's just such Colossians chapter 1 gives us that same indication that all of the characteristics of God are not just marching as God is carrying through his plan, that, that, that Jesus was an, uh, a part of the creative reality in, in, in Genesis as much as he's part of the now life-giving reality as he's intruded into the world through the form of a baby in a manger. And that was moving us to the reality that it's not just that he created things so that he could carry his plans through. But there's an aspect of he's created these things also for himself that, that the plan and purposes of God is to bring all of creation to, to himself and that in the context of all of that, that you and I who have professed faith in Jesus Christ are part of that plan where we've now been <coughs> grafted in. 
We've now been connected with the, the truth of who God is. And now we are recipients of light and life. Christ is the one that's working in these ways where he has and is light and life. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. That light shines into darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So he's moving us not only to this creative reality that Christ is the source of life himself. He's the source of light itself. The process of that, we're getting this sense of power. That that the, the light and the life that Christ brings is so incredible, so remarkable, so overcoming that darkness itself cannot overcome the presence of the light of Christ. The significance of these realities are so substantial as we consider the the impact that that has on our life. So we would say, right, if, if what John is saying is true, which I unashamedly and unequivocally believe it is, it's, it's authoritative, it's absolute, then any moments where we find ourselves feeling like there is darkness surrounding us, the reality is, is that the presence of Jesus is the antidote to that darkness. That there's this relational movement towards Christ away from ourselves that begins to to push out this vacuum of darkness. Darkness can't exist in the midst of light. So I was thinking about that just recently over the course of this last week. And one of the remarkable stories that I remember just before my lifetime was the the story of, of Mother Teresa in Calcutta. Now, the, the slums of Calcutta are probably some of the most uh, impoverished and challenging places to be. If we would consider even imagining dark darkness, that would be it. The, the reason Calcutta was, was made more public and, and moved to the forefront of of our minds was because of the work of, of Mother Teresa. There's a desire as she moved in to those slums to, to realize that that decision became a, a characteristic of, of what it means to represent the cause of Christ. Here's what I mean, the, the messiness and the dirtiness and the challenges and the darknesses in the slums of Calcutta would have afforded absolutely no reason for anyone to want to choose to be there. I mean, really, there would be a a, a more of an aversion to being there than a desire to go. And yet through the context of her life and her love for these people, the, the most vulnerable and impoverished amongst us, there's a a level of difficulty understanding the wise in which she would do it. What would possibly give her the motivation to be in such a dreary, dark, difficult place of suffering? For me, it serves as an indication of 
the very reality that I think we have to now gaze into. Really, if we think about from God's perspective, the scope of the entire world, there is that reality of mess, brokenness. Nothing that this world offers would afford some level of merit in and of itself to draw Jesus to say, oh yeah, I'll come and I'll step into that. The reality is, is that we create amongst ourselves more aversion than invitation. <laughs> the, the brokenness and the darkness, even of our own hearts, take the world out of it. Even in our own souls, there is just this sense in which we realize there is mess and darkness and brokenness that seeps through who we are as people. And I think at times we feel that very same thing. God has more of an aversion than an invitation. And yet, just as what we talked about last week, realizing that that's not the case, that there's a a willful, joyful, purposeful intrusion into the world and into our hearts by Christ himself that brings light and life. We know our remarkable rebellion. We know that we are in need. But here's sometimes what we miss in the midst of the incarnation, the limitless grace upon grace of Christ. He has come, he came for the very purpose of dispensing grace upon grace in the midst of remarkable rebellion for the purpose of drawing us close. Just like Jared said last week, we're going to beat the drum. Not only did God create us to be with us, but now I'd like to suggest to you that God became one of us to be with us. God became one of us to be with us. The purpose of the incarnation in part is to draw us to himself, to be with us, to to maximize and, and further amplify the relational aspect of God himself. This longing, this drawing of who we are to who God is and realizing the substance and significance of God desiring And carrying out his plan to be with us. God purposed through the annuals of all of human history to be with his people. And so not only did God create us to be with us, Christ became one of us to be with us. That's what he says in these next few verses. He tells us as he goes through uh, the story of John, uh, John the Baptist and communicating that he was just a messenger communicating the true light. Here's what he says in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God." So now we get a a life-altering, paradigm-shifting perspective of the characteristics of God. And and John communicates to us that that the, the substance in which we are able to receive this invitation of God being with us, that Christ became one of us to be with us, is, is through belief. Those who believed in him, those who are finding themselves 
acting in faith and trusting the aspects of the character of God and his intrusion into the world have been given the right to become children of God. So the, the core aspect of the incarnation is that there's this purposeful act of God to provide access to himself relationally, to be born, what he says, of the spirit, not by the will of man and not by blood, but, but born from God. Access, the way in which that takes place, is through belief and trust in who Christ is. There's an act of faith in the realization of the character of God communicating to us who he is for the purpose of enjoying and being with God. Now, I want to communicate to you that that experience is not just one that we will feel in eternity. That this intrusion, this incarnation, the presence of Christ coming into the world, Christ becoming one of us to be with us, is so that we can experience the presence and the joy of who Christ is right now. That there's a, 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 an attachment, a drawing of us to Christ in every area. That the ultimate end goal of every challenge, struggle, problem, difficulty, falsehood that we face in the midst of our life has its end goal and to draw us closer to God. That there's a, an invitation to be with God, not to just do things for him. Christ became one of us to be with us. There's a quote I'd like to read for you from a, a scholar, and he says this. This is a sketch of our world, he says. He has created humanity and in a unique way given us light. But we have chosen deadness instead of life, and as a result, we got darkness instead of light. We're now functioning, he says, with intelligence without faith, moral sensitivity without truth, spirituality without a spiritual life. But Christ has come into that situation as the origin of all life and light to switch us on again, to give us truth, to give us life. He asks not only that we believe in him and that we trust him and that we follow him. He asks only that we believe in him, that we trust him and that we follow him. But some people incredibly choose darkness rather than light. This Christmas, you have a simple message for them. I came to bring light into the world. I think that that's where he begins to take us next, as he starts to not only just unfold, as he did in the first part of the chapter, right, about the characteristics of God and the significance of what our response is and why that response is 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 rational and why it makes sense to move towards the invitation that Christ offers. Now he lays it down for us in, the, in these last few verses in chapter, in verse 14, and tells us the implications of really what this means for our life. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ became one of us to be with us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. And here it is, full of grace and truth. The aspects that John des- decides to highlight for us in the incarnation, in the presence of Christ becoming a, one of us to be with us, are two things. Grace 
and truth. There's a reality that the truth in which Christ brings to the table is an accurate assessment of the things around us in our world and even of our own hearts. We can trust the authority and the absolute truth of God's word in such a way that it it peers into our soul and gives us an accurate assessment of the brokenness and dysfunction that we face. But then that's married with grace. This sense in which that truth of who we are and the depth of our needs and brokenness doesn't cause an aversion of God against us, but opens the door of an invocation of God towards us. God invites himself, God invites us to him. And so the significance of that reality is just overwhelming. He tells us in verse 16, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Limitless grace. From his fullness. From the the fullness of the character of who God is and the presence and intrusion theologically of the incarnation is that God himself became one of us to be with us. And so all of the things that we would think that would avert God's eyes and attention from us are actually those very things that have called him to, to intrude in the midst of our lives so that we can be brought to him. That, that, that God became one of us to, to, to be with us. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. He tells us that no one has ever seen God, the only God who is the Father who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so now this perspective of the presence of Christ in the midst of our lives and the reality and the implications of what that means are just remarkable. This is how uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon says it. Emmanuel, God with us, our nature, in our nature, in our sorrow, and in our life work, in our punishment, in our grave, and now with us, or rather we with him, in resurrection, ascension, triumph, and second advent splendor. Everything changes as we think of the impact and the potency of the incarnation. God became one of us to be with us. God created us to be with us. Now God came, became one of us to be with us. And so we, we see this rolling out of this invitation of intimacy that it's so highly relational. And so what I want to do is I wanted to try a bit of an object lesson today. And I don't know how well this is going to work, but I'm certainly going to give it a shot. I was trying to think about how we understand life. And and just, I mean, maybe it seems overly simple, but so often I think we find ourselves trying to figure out how to even describe this journey we're on. And in the context of even my own life and even the the people that that we meet with regularly and just uh, all of us, we're navigating so many different challenges and so many different things. So what I wanted to do is put those in two different categories. The reality that I think we live this life, this, this, this journey that we're on while we're in this world between two different, very significant needs and situations. I think we find ourselves in the midst of of living amongst two different realities that seem to be opposed to one another. Deepest hurts and deepest hungers. So as we think about this, they're connected together in two somewhat opposing 
realities. And, and we could even maybe potentially consider this life. So in the midst of our journey, some of the things that motivate us in so many different ways are the, the significance of our, our deepest hungers, the, the areas in which we feel so longing for things to be a certain way. Hungers potentially in relationships, desires for others around us to fill in vacancies, emptiness, and gaps inside of our heart that are so significant and have felt like they're so unmet for so long that we find ourselves pursuing those things in so many different ways. But then we also have those places of deep hurt. Many of us, if not all of us, have been wounded significantly in so many different ways. And those hurts have framed so much of how we interact with one another and how we interact with the world. And these two places seem opposed to one another. That we feel like we're, we're on this spectrum back and forth where whether our, our hungers are uh, driving our decisions and this need for, for comfort or for approval or for power or for significance become that which motivates our heart to make all of these decisions. And then the, the, the hurt part that, that so many of us have been carrying around burdens of hurt and pain for the context of our lives that literally these two places are at tug of war with one another. That there's just tension in trying to understand which is going to pull us one way. And yet in the context of all of those things, there's a level of feeling lost, if you will, that, that we're we're vacillating back and forth between hurt and hunger and, and all of the decisions that we made are put in those baskets where they're sort of meshed with one another and, and, and we feel uncertain about what to do. If there's a way to describe darkness, it's, it's this pendulum, right? That, that whether it's hurt or hunger, whatever's driving our motivation, we wonder where God is. How does he move us beyond this tug of war inside of our own souls? That the appetites that we have that move us towards sin and selfishness or the hearts that we have that move us to distance and, and, and fear in the context of relationships. These places where we feel so uncertain about what the way forward is. And we, we can describe the hurts. We can describe the hungers fairly well. We know where our appetites lie and we're aware of where we've been wounded the most. And usually that comes in the context of close relationships, people we trusted, things we thought would be a certain way and weren't. And then it moves into the next level. When we don't feel that our hungers are being met and they remain vacant, in our relationships, we attribute those vacancies to God. God can't meet my deepest hungers, nor can God heal my deepest hurts. And so what becomes the place that is so motivating or what, what we focus on so much are the hunger or the hurts. And yet, John 1, right? Christ is and has light and life. He, he intrudes into this world, the incarnation, the presence of Christ. Christ became one of us to be with us. 
is for the very purpose of realizing that the focus on the hunger or the hurt is the wrong place to choose to place our attention. The the baby in the manger, which is so life-altering, becomes the source of changing our gaze and our focus. And so let's imagine for a minute that we put the manger, the the incarnation, all of the theological implications of of Jesus becoming one of us to be with us into into our lives, not just into the context of history, but let's, let's reflect for a moment on the significance of what we mean that Jesus has become one of us to be with us. And in the context of those things, what if, from the context of our deepest hearts and our deepest hungers, we allowed those things to be focused on the context of the incarnation? And what if, in the midst of the deepest hurts and the deepest hungers, we wrapped our lives around the reality that Jesus Christ became one of us to be with us. And so these things no longer become opposed to one another and we're vacillating back and forth between hurt and hunger. We're actually moving towards the significance of who Christ is. And these things don't become sources of contention with one another they, be, they find their fulfillment and fullness in grace upon grace that is shown up with the baby in the manger. That these deepest needs, these hurts and hungers, the desire for, for healing and for dealing with the appetites that we have in this world, all of that becomes something that now draws our gaze to the fact that Jesus became one of us to be with us and it's in the midst of that relationship, in the significance of that relationship, that the hurts and the hungers no longer are that which becomes the source of how we operate in this world. Jesus becoming one of us to be with us, that relationship becomes how we operate in this world. It gives us a different gaze on our hurts, a different view on our hungers, and becomes this place of satisfaction that if there is, and because there is a relationship provided to us by God himself, he became one of us to be with us, that that said relationship is the source of all of our healing and the dealing with all of our appetites so that our appetites now are found and met in Christ and He becomes the source. It it replaces the temporal longings of this world with the eternal longings of relationship in Christ. And it replaces the hurts with a level of healing and a reality of forgiveness that's unmatched in this world by Christ Himself. That that he became one of us to be with us. It is so remarkably relational that not just in the history of all of the world between remarkable rebellion and limitless grace, we find it now coming down to its crux in the midst of our lives. That why did Jesus become one of us? To be with us. So in the journey of all of our lives from our deepest hurts to our deepest hungers, we find ourselves realizing that intimacy and connection and relationship with Christ himself through faith we become and described as children of God, born of God. That means the things that will result from the hurts and hungers is for the glory of God and the purpose of God. Our suffering Our challenges, the darkness we face, the limitations that we have, the hurts and the hungers that we live in in this world make no sense 
outside of the incarnation. That if all of these things are drawing us into that place where Jesus became one of us to be with us, the purpose of knowing that God will glorify himself through the context of that relationship and continue to draw us close. You are not alone in your hunger. You're not alone in your hurt. But in the context of all of those things, our focus is not just primarily on those things. Those things are what are moving us towards focusing on the presence of Christ himself. Through this holiday season and all of the craziness that's taking place in your life and mine, and the world around us, would we not forget that Jesus became one of us to be with us? Let's pray. Thank you.